you can open up your Bibles and your verse Peter. And we'll be in chapter 2 here just a minute, but I want to remind you of a couple of things. Um, now, if you remember, if you were here last night, we pointed out that in that song we just sang, there's a couple of themes that uh, you see in the book of First Peter. And part of the reason you see that is because First Peter is, uh, some of it's based on Isaiah 40, where that song comes from. Uh, yesterday we looked at chapter 1, and you remember at the end of chapter 1, Peter quotes Psalm 40 to prove that we've been born again. That all of us that have only earthly fathers are just flesh, and our flesh is like grass, and we're all going to die. But if we've been born again by the Word of God, then we are eternal beings, and we will live on as the Word of God. Uh, and that we have all those great benefits of, of being born again and having a new father. Um, a couple of you commented to me last night afterwards about not thinking about or not noticing that Peter told us why he wrote the book. Um, in chapter 5, verse 12, remember, Peter said that he had written to us briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firmly. Most people don't think First Peter is a book about the grace of God. When they read it, they think it's a book about suffering and difficulty and hardship and obedience and holiness and a lot of words that most people nowadays don't associate with grace. Um, but the value of this book is if you'll let Peter tell you what true grace is, uh, it'll change your perspective about it. Uh, it. Grace is a wonderful gift, but it's more than just being forgiven. If I can summarize it, here's essentially what the book of 1 Peter's teaching. The grace in your life is not simply that God saved you, but that God sanctified you. That God gave you the gift of forgiveness so that He could give you the responsibility of being His child and His representative and living a life of a new identity and a new purpose. And that really is the grace. But along with that grace of being the children of God, there is great trial and difficulty and struggle and things you're going to have to get through in your life. Um, grace doesn't erase all that. It calls us to that. Um, and I think that's part of the value of this book. You can think about it deeply. So, let's start in chapter 2, verse 1. Is this better? Uh, you need a Q-tip. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> you not Anybody? Yeah. Uh, if you don't tell them you're in me, just wait a minute. My voice is a little bit rough. That's a lot of sound. I just didn't think I had turned it on, so okay. I'm surprised they didn't come out. I turned it on. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now that we're clear. All right. Chapter 2, verse 1. Let's begin there. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the word. <laughs> now, if I was the one that had done chapter divisions, I probably would have put chapter 1 ending after verse 3, and I probably would have started chapter 2 in verse 4, but I wasn't the one who got to choose chapter divisions. Um, these three verses really still apply to chapter 1. Remember, chapter 1 was all about being born again. We have a new birth, a new father, and now there's some instructions in these verses about since we've been born again, we've got to 
do some things and act like a baby actually would act. Did you notice, though, that verse 1 doesn't sound like what you would tell a baby to do? Like, notice verse 2 says, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. But go back to verse 1. These people who were new Christians were told in verse 1 to put aside some things. Now that you have a new life, there are some things that first priority you got to get out of your life. Look at the list. Malice, hypocrisy, or malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Now think about those problems in people's lives. Would you guys agree that those aren't easy things to get out of your life if you've been practicing them? If you lived your whole life with malice, meaning you just thought about tearing people down and bringing them down, and you didn't want to see people do well because it meant you weren't doing well, and and you, and you grew up, by the way, I learned this when I was young on the playground. Like I, I didn't always have the best thoughts about the people around me. Um, so I used my words to sort of tear them down. If you lived a life of deceit, you know, you just got used to lying. Um, you were always trying to get around things. Some of you started that really young. Your parents will tell you. You know, they remember the day as a three-year-old, you begin to realize, you know what, I can lie. And like, I can start trying to get out of some things. You lived a life of malice and deceit. And what about hypocrisy? You will live two lives, you know? Put on one face, but do something different when people aren't watching. Uh, the next thing on the list, envy. That deep down in your heart, you are really jealous about some people. What they're good at, what they look like, what they have in their life. Um, the fact that they have somebody to love and you don't. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that people envy. And then finally, they're slander. Good morning, girls. Um, slander. Somebody that's practiced in their life, just when they talk about people, mostly what they talk about is, is stuff that they shouldn't be talking about. Think about all those challenges in somebody's life. And then think about Peter just saying, get rid of them. Just put them away. You might say, that's going to take me a really long time. And, and that sounds like something you might say to somebody who's older or more mature, but to say that to a, a brand new babe in Christ? You guys ever had a congregation where in your congregation you did like a babe in Christ study? You know, and these new Christians go to like a babes in Christ study. You know what's weird about that is nobody ever does Second Peter 2 1 with them. It's always about other things. You know, like the basics about knowing the Bible. And you know, what if we started every babes in class, uh, uh, babes in Christ class? That's all I can say. Uh, this early in the morning, um, with Second Peter chapter two or First Peter chapter two verse one. Get rid of all these things. Challenging, right? Well, notice verse two because verse two is a little bit more what you'd expect to say to a babe, right, or a baby. And that is, like a newborn baby, long for the pure milk of the word, so that you may grow by and respect the salvation, if you taste the kindness of the Lord. That's a weird verse also because it's saying that you need to develop an appetite, um, and some of us haven't developed that appetite. Uh, now, some of you may have been around babies before, because you had siblings, but you haven't, most of you haven't had babies of your own yet. Uh, but guys and gals, this is what you're going to figure out when you have a baby. It's crazy how much they want milk. Like it's, 
it's just weird. Like when you're the guy and you're holding the baby, it's still looking for milk, and you're like, I can't help you. Like it's like if you get it close to your face, it'll grab onto your nose. If you like put your fingers near it, it'll like suck on your fingers. I mean, it's looking for milk everywhere. Um, now, of course, a baby doesn't have discernment to figure out where the right source is. But a babe in Christ is somebody who has now decided, I know where the source is. Like, I know who the Word is. I accepted the Word. I was born again by the Word. I know who my Lord is. And now, I just want to eat and drink everything He can offer me. Uh, it's a great couple verses there to help us understand what to do. Uh, so let's now see where Peter ships. We talked about the new, the true grace of the new birth. Now, in the next section, starting in chapter 2, verse 4, we're going to talk about the true grace of the new identity. Now, Peter's using Old Testament images here. Um, the first chapter is an Old Testament image of being born again, from Isaiah 40. But now he's going to use a couple of other images from the Old Testament to help us understand who we are as Christians. Let's read this section, and then we'll identify what the, the Old Testament pictures are of our identity. Verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble... Because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as aliens and strangers, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Alright, now, think about the images that were just painted there. Uh, one image is about a building. That there was this cornerstone. It was rejected. This stone was rejected. It became a cornerstone. And then the text says that we are, what? Living stones being built upon that chief cornerstone. And of course, when he talks about it as sort of a Zion project, the immediate building you would think of is what? What's the building in Zion that God built with stones? Uh, the temple. You know, when Solomon and those guys finally put the temple together. Uh, but here you've got God saying, do you know who you are, Christians? You are the new building project. 
Um, that's the first image. We're going to talk about that more in a minute and make sense of it. The second one is down there around verse 9. And in that text, we're not a building, but we are workers within the building. We're a priesthood. So all that stuff in the Old Testament about there being a temple where God dwelt, and then people who served God on behalf of men, or men on behalf of God, that priesthood, you've got Peter saying, this is now who you are. This is your identity. Um, And it's very important that we think deeply about these pictures of our life. And let me remind you, those are both responsibilities, aren't they? High-level responsibilities that come with a lot of work and effort and difficulty. But according to Peter, it's the true, what? Grace of God. That's a gift in your life, that you get to be this. Um, So keep thinking about that. Let me make a few observations. Go back to verse 4. Notice here that it starts by saying, and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious inside of God. All right, that phrase, coming to him, is an interesting phrase. Most of the time in the Bible, who came to who? Like, when you think about me and God and, like, the reconciliation most of the time, the Bible teaches that He came to us, right? So God sent His Son, Jesus came to us to help us. Now, you've got Peter saying, come to Him as a living stone. There's actually a picture being painted here that I, I think I want to make sure you see clearly. Um, turn with me to Hebrews 13. This might be the best way to illustrate the picture that's being painted here. Hebrews chapter 13, uh, starting around verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Before I go any further, who are those that serve the tabernacle? Look at verse 10. Who are the people that serve the tabernacle? I heard it. Priests. Priests serve the tabernacle. But look at the verse. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now, the priests had a great privilege in the Old Testament, didn't they? They got to make the sacrifice, but then they also got to eat of the sacrifice and share some of the sacrifice with God. But now you've got the Hebrew writer telling Christians who are in danger of going back to that priesthood and in danger of going back to that temple, you guys, don't go back there. We've got an altar that we can eat from that they don't even have a right to eat from. What are you talking about? Verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So, let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Um, I'm going to draw a picture on the board. Is this this what I use for that? Yeah, good luck. Okay, (laughs) good luck. Do they not work? Some of them. That's helpful. Try it. Keep trying. All right, I'm going to draw a picture. It's a very terrible picture of Jerusalem. All right, so (laughs) this is the place where the temple was. And this is the city. Um, 
Now notice in the text, in the Old Testament, when they would bring uh, a sacrifice to the temple, and they would give it to the priests, according to the book of Leviticus, then what they would do is they would offer the sacrifice, but they would take the animal outside of the camp. Now in the wilderness, that would have just been the people and the camp. But when they finally settled, what that meant was they would take the animals outside of the city of Jerusalem, and they would burn this an animal. They would burn the animal outside there. All right. Um, and the reason they would do that is so the people wouldn't be defiled by any of that kind of thing. But look at the text again. The Bible teaches that the reason God had them do that for centuries. Was it was it was indicative or a foreshadowing of Jesus when Jesus died? Did he die in the city of Jerusalem? Where did he die? Outside at Calvary, right? So look at the text. Therefore, Jesus also, when he suffered, he suffered outside the gate or outside uh, the camp. There in verse twelve. Now look at verse 13. What are we told in verse 13? Let us do what? Go out to him. So it's kind of like this. God sent Jesus, and of course Jesus came to Jerusalem to help the people, right? Did they want him there? So what did the builders do? The builders would be the leaders of the Jews. What did the builders do with this precious living stone that came to them that could have helped them? They rejected it. It's like they kicked him out, and they took him out here, and they killed him. Now, Christians are being told in the book of Hebrews, you leave this place because there's no lasting city here. And you go out to him outside the camp. Why? Because that's the only place there is a lasting city. That's going to be the new building project. That temple that he would build would be apart from Jerusalem. That's the new building. Now, first of all, do you sort of see that picture? I'm going to try to paint that more clearly with the words of Peter and in the Old Testament. All right, so go back to 1 Peter again. Look at chapter four, or verse 4 again, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. I want you to notice those two words in verse 4. Choice and precious. Did you notice that those words keep reoccurring in our reading? Look at, look at precious down in verse 6. Verse 6. But this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, there's choice again, and a precious cornerstone. You see that idea of precious? Now look down at verse 7. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. Now, remember, when Jesus came to Jerusalem, He was the chosen one of God. And He was precious to God. But did the Jews find him precious? Did they think he was important or valuable? Not at all. So they took something that was choice and precious and they threw it out. They got rid of it. But now look at verse 7 again. 
Was Jesus still precious? Yes. Who was this precious value for? Who was it for? Verse 7. You who believe. You see that? So, we're told that this whole story of what happened with Jesus was all about us. So that we would understand that when we came to him, we were going to be a part of the thing that God chose to do in this beautiful building project. There was choice and precious in his sight. Now, do you think we are cho- chosen also, or choice? But that word, that word choice up there in verse 4 is chosen. Look down now at verse 9. Verse 9 says, But you are a what? Choice race. A chosen race. That's the same idea, same word. Jesus was choice and precious, but he was rejected. We have now, because we understand his value, come to him and God's made us choice and precious. I think that's a beautiful picture. Go back now to verse 4 and look at verse 4 again. Notice that it said that what was rejected by men but is choice and precious in the what? What's your version say? In the sight of God. See that? God looks down at the world and sees things completely different than people. Remember how God does that? Think about the Old Testament. You know, somebody would see somebody like Samuel would see the sons of Jesse, you know, and say, oh, surely this is going to be like the king, right? Because he looked a certain way. But God said, no, I rejected him. Uh, I'm looking at a different person for a different reason. I'm looking for a guy after my own heart. And even though David wasn't the biggest of his brothers or the tallest of his brothers, he was the one choice and precious in the sight of God. Remember that? Why is this important? Um, women, I want to ask you guys something. You ever, every once in a while, in the world that you live in, because you feel like sometimes there's this competition to look a certain way, do you ever feel like sometimes you're rejected by men when other women are accepted by men? You know, it's like I, I just don't feel like they think I'm all that great. And I've seen a lot of young women struggle with that. You know, by the way, this isn't just a woman thing; it can be a guy thing too. Um, I want to show you this phrase, "precious in the sight of God," not just applied to Jesus here. Go to chapter three. Look at verse three. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing your jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of your heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is... What's your phrase? What's the phrase then? Precious. Precious in the what? In the sight of God. Look, girls, if there's one thing that can turn your life around with stuff like that, it's that you connect that verse that says to you, if you work on who you are inside, more than outside, and you become this beautiful person, even though it's hidden in your heart, and not everybody can see it, and sometimes even your own husband, like here in chapter 3, may not understand the beauty of who you are, and he may not obey the truth, and he may not be all that great. What you can always remember is, you are precious in the sight of God. 
and always connect it back to Jesus. Did you know that's exactly Jesus' story? He was rejected by them. They didn't see his value. And they threw him out. But you know what God built on that precious, chosen one that only he could see? Eventually, people did see it. Those that believed, they understood it. And he made a beautiful thing out of that. I just want you to see that language in the book of First Peter, because I think it's very important. Um, let's go back to what we were talking about now. Um, in Second Peter, chapter, or First Peter chapter 2. Sorry, it's early. I'm getting all my things mixed up here with my words. Um, look at verse um, 6. For this is contained in Scripture. Now, the, Peter's going to quote a couple different places here. He's going to quote Isaiah chapter 28. He's going to quote Psalm 118. And he's going to quote Isaiah 8 in those couple of quotes. Isaiah 28, Isaiah 8, and Psalm 118. Now, I think we aren't always real familiar with those passages and with those contexts. Um, so it would be good for us to maybe go there and spend some time. And I don't have time to do all of it. So let's just go to Psalm 118 for a minute. Psalm 118. I'm going to start reading in verse 22. Psalm 118.22 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do say, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice of the cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Alright, go back through that for just a minute. Look at verse 22 again. You see our text there? The stone which the builders rejected to become the chief cornerstone. And it's marvelous. But now look at verse 25. Do you recognize verse 25 and 26 from the New Testament at all? O Lord, we beseech you, do save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm going to say the Hebrew here in a different way, the way it's said in the New Testament. Hosanna. Hosanna, which is, Lord, we beseech you, save us. Lord, save us. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you recognize that? When did people say that? Do you remember? When Jesus entered Jerusalem. When Jesus entered Jerusalem. Now, remember our picture up here. God sent Jesus and he came where? To Jerusalem. When he was coming into Jerusalem, go to Matthew 21. By the way, Matthew 21 and Psalm 118 go together. If you want to understand Matthew 21, you have to understand Psalm 118. The whole scene of Matthew 21 is a re, it's the history retelling of the prophecy of Psalm 118. Um, now watch what happens here in uh, Matthew chapter 21. And this is going to get back to us understanding who we are. 
Matthew 21, um, around verse um, 8. Most of the crowd spread the coats in the ground, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Alright. By the way, when you read that, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. People are cutting palm branches and laying them down, and they're yelling and shouting Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Does it sound like he's being accepted at first? Does it sound like people are seeing his value and they understand he's precious and they're glad about that? But you remember when he gets into the city, he begins to do some things. He cleanses the temple and he drives the money changers out. And very quickly, people become very hostile to Jesus. The, the authorities <laughs> him. They begin to reject him. Skip. Later on in Matthew 21, uh, to verse, well, verse 33. Jesus tells a story in Matthew 21, 33 about a landowner who built a tower and, uh, in a vineyard and he put some people in charge of the vineyard and the master went away, the landowner went away. And he keeps sending people back to the vineyard keepers to gather sort of what was his due. And every time he sends somebody back to talk to these people, the people do what to him? To the to the messenger. You remember? They kill him. And then they stone the next one, and they like do all these bad things to these people that are coming from the master. Eventually, the landowner sends his son, right? And what do the people say when he gets there? Um, this is the heir, verse 38, let's kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and threw him, look what it says, out of the vineyard and killed him. Remember Jerusalem? These were the vineyard keepers. These were the temple workers. These were the ones that were doing all the job. And when the son came, they threw him out and killed him. They rejected him, the chief cornerstone. Now, Jesus tells this story in such a compelling way that the people listening to it hate, hate what they hear. Because look at verse 41. Uh, Jesus asked the question in verse 40, When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And they said... He will bring, they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers and will pay him, who will pay him the proceeds of their proper seasons. All right. Here's what their self-condemnation said. <laughs> those vineyard keepers that did that, he's going he's gonna to bring those wretches to a wretched end. And then he's going to give the vineyard job to somebody else that will do it right. Let's see, what were they talking about? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 42. Did you never read the scripture, in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
You know what's weird about Jesus' question there? Look at what he says in verse 42. Did you never read the scripture? What scripture did he quote here? Psalm 118. Did you never read the scripture? What did they just been screaming when he came into Jerusalem? Psalm 118. Like the verses are right next to each other. And they were like, Hosanna, oh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then later on, he's in the city, and he goes, Did you guys ever pay attention to like, what the rest of that said? Because like, you guys are all excited about me being here, but you're rejecting me. And I'm, God's going to take that chief cornerstone, that stone you rejected, make it the chief cornerstone of his new temple, of his new project, of his new vineyard. It was going to be new vineyard workers and new priests and new people doing the job that you were supposed to do. Do you know what privilege and grace you had to have this place and now you're rejecting me? Now notice the next verse. Verse 43. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken in pieces. But on him, on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. You know, verse 43 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. Because it was the the one clear time where Jesus essentially said, God's going to change everything. The people who once represented God, the Jewish system, the Jewish people, he was taking that away from them. And he was going to give that responsibility to the church, to us, to non-Jewish people, some Jews and mostly Gentiles. And we were going to be the ones then who would be the building, the priesthood, the vineyard workers, the project managers. You know, over there in Peter, that's exactly what Peter's saying about who we are. That's our identity. Um, by the way, what is verse twenty? What does verse forty-four mean? Verse 44 is an interesting verse. You got this stone, and if you fall on it, you'll be broken in pieces, but if it falls on you, it'll scatter you like dust. What does that mean? I don't know if I understand this completely, but picture it like this. Here's this stone that was rejected, and we're told to go to it, right? So here we all go running. We run out to the stone, and we fall on him. We become the living stones who fall in here. What does it say about us? We will be broken to pieces. My life will never be the same. God will take the old me and shatter me, and I'll have a new life built on this rock. Because I came and fell on him. I think that's actually a positive idea in that first part. But the second part... This stone that the builders rejected in Jerusalem. You remember what Jesus said he was going to do once he took his throne in heaven? What was he going to do in 87? He was going to come back to Jerusalem and do what? Fall on them. He was going to come and destroy them. And you don't want that to happen. <clears throat> Alright, so the imagery of this goes all the way back to the Old Testament, all the way through the teaching of Jesus. And then let's look again at Peter, First Peter 2. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
But you once were not a people, now you're the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 is a quote also from the Old Testament. Um, does anybody know where it's from? You might look at your footnote, or you maybe you just know off the top of your head. Where is that verse in the Old Testament? Okay. There are some allusions to it in Deuteronomy. But it's specifically a quote from Exodus 19. Exodus um, chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. Now, do you remember what was going on in Exodus 19? The children of Israel had just come out of where? Where did they leave at the beginning of Exodus? Egypt. They just came out of Egypt. <clears throat> or I'm going to say it a different way. They had just been delivered from a land of darkness. It was darkness. They'd been delivered from it. He called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And they came and stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. That's where they are in chapter 1. And God looks at all the Israelites and he says to them, he says, You are a chosen race, the royal priesthood, a people for my own possession. And you're supposed to tell the whole world about how great I am. That was their charge. That was their grace. That was their responsibility. The Bible story is they didn't do it. They didn't live up to it. They didn't talk about how great God was. They talked about how great they were. They didn't proclaim His excellencies. They acted like they were great. They didn't behave themselves like they should. They lived like hypocrites. And because of them, Romans 2, the name of God was blasphemed among the Gentiles. Now Peter turns all that around and says, Christians, do you know who you are? You guys are standing at the mount of foot, uh, foot of Mount Sinai. You guys are the new building project. You guys are the new Zion, the new temple. You're the new vineyard workers. And you guys need to understand that God's giving you the same calling that he gave them. So what do we do about it? Verse 11. Verse Peter 2.11. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. You know that, those verses were the failure of the Israelites. They didn't keep their behavior excellent among the Gentiles. In all their hypocrisy and in all their, you know, preaching one thing and practicing another according to Romans 2, people did not glorify God in the day of visitation. In fact, when Jesus visited the first time, they themselves rejected him. Our job is to live in a way so that when the Lord finally visits again, everyone will understand what it is because of our life. Do you see how high a column that is? The images of that are rich and deep and big. And by the way, he was saying that to newborn babies. Did you catch that? Like back in, at the beginning of the chapter? This wasn't stuff for like old Christians. This is stuff for new Christians. This is the true grace of God in your life. This new identity. We'll say more about that in the next lesson. We'll start from there. Thanks for your attention uh, this morning.